This is about that time of year where weeds spread, spread like fire. You could have a huge bare field with just a single weed in it, but as it matures and flowers, it will spread its seed all around, and the next time it rains, they're all going to spring up themselves. You're going to have many weeds. They'll all grow, mature, flower, seed, and just it'll reproduce over and over again. And pretty soon, after just a few growing seasons, that, that field is going to be covered in weeds. In a way, though, that's kind of like God's plan to build his church. Starts off small and insignificant. The Messiah comes. No one even recognizes him. He even dies on a cross. But in his death, God was sowing a a new seed on the earth, the seed of life. After all, the seed must die before the plant to emerge. And so through the death of Jesus, God is going to plant a new field. The impact of Christ's death and resurrection spread to just a few disciples at first. They believed, they matured. After his resurrection, only a few were believing in him, but they took the the seed, the gospel of Jesus Christ, they they scattered it around them. And at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, it came like rain, and thousands of those seeds germinated, and new life began. Thousands of people were born again by the truth of the gospel. And in turn, many of them grew up, matured, scattered their own seed, and just the spread of the gospel in the early church was like wildfire. This strategy to build the church was simply well-pleasing to the Lord. And Christ himself used agriculture imagery to describe the growth of the kingdom in this age. It's like the parable of the mustard seed, which I'll read for you, Matthew 13, 31, where Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The mustard seed was known for being the smallest seed around, but from such humble beginnings, a a huge tree would emerge where countless birds could come and, and nest in it. And so it goes with God's kingdom in this age through the church. It starts off small and insignificant. But just give it time. It's designed to spread, to grow, and to reach the ends of the earth. This is how God will build his church on the earth. And God is is simply well pleased to use the the seed of the gospel and the foolishness of this message preached uh, of Christ crucified. God will use that message to draw people to himself. And God's plan to build his church through the ages is not just concerning breadth, but also depth. As each individual comes to know Christ through the gospel, and so new spiritual life sprouts within them. And this is meant to be just the beginning of a lifetime of growth. Like all living things, Christians are meant to grow. And mighty oak trees don't spring up in a day. They too start off as just a little tender shoot in the ground and Over time, though, they're meant to grow and mature and become a firm tree. And so it should be for Christians, where God intends to build a church that is as deep as it is broad. And he will be faithful to do just that. Now, our response to God's work through his gospel should be to marvel and to give him thanks. Now, how often in life are we dissatisfied? We're dissatisfied with what we have. We're dissatisfied with, with where we are. We're dissatisfied with who we are. But if you're a Christian, you should knock that off. I mean, don't you realize all you have in Christ Jesus? I mean, look, God, first off, God saved you 
through this gospel. You were spiritually dead. Now you're spiritually alive. That's a miracle. Have you already taken for granted the miracle? You should thank God for that miracle every day. But you, have, you have new life. You have an eternal hope. That's something to be thankful for and satisfied in. And furthermore, God is still working on you. That he who began a good work in Christ Jesus will complete it. Philippians 1.6. That means that it's God's design to use the same gospel truth and take you deeper in your faith. To grow you. To sanctify you. I mean, are you perfectly like Christ right now in practice? No. But if you're alive, you should grow. And if you have grown in grace and faith, even a little, that's something to be thankful for as well. You can trust God to be faithful to stretch you and to grow you, that you might increase in faith and bear fruit. And you should give him thanks for that too. And I'm telling you, if if Christians would just realize what God has done, is doing, and will do for them through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and give thanks for that every day, they would be so much better off. They'd be well along in the path of maturity. We need to give thanks and remember the work of the gospel in our lives. And this is the sentiment that the Apostle Paul expresses in our passage for this morning. It's found in Colossians chapter 1. You can turn there now in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. And just last week, we began our verse-by-verse exposition through this book of the Bible. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church of Colossae, which he didn't plant. He had never been there. But he writes to build up their faith and to show them the sufficiency of Christ and his gospel to meet all of their spiritual needs. He wants them to be assured and steadfast in their hope that they wouldn't be lured away by some other false hope. And remember that the Colossians, they were facing on the horizon a false hope, a false teaching. It was all about diminishing Christ and his gospel. And Paul is going to write to them otherwise that no, Christ is sufficient. His gospel is enough for all of your spiritual needs. And Paul begins this letter with a customary greeting and a thanksgiving, which was pretty typical for letters written back then. But as always, Paul breaks the mold and in his introductions to his letters, he interjects a lot of truth and theology where he's writing with a purpose and he sprinkles little notes of that purpose in all of his introductions. And that's the case here. In Colossians. So there, there's a lot going on in this simple greeting. Well, we're going to read it now. Colossians 1, 3 through 8. You can follow along. He says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. There's a lot going on here, more than you might imagine. And on one level, this is Paul introducing himself to these Colossian Christians whom he had never met. 
He's letting them know of his love for them, his concern for them. He, even though he never met them, he has not stopped praying for them ever since he heard about their faith. Now, speaking of uh, his prayer for them, this prayer is primarily one of thanksgiving. And that is, after all, the main verb here. This, this can seem a little confusing because this is all one long run-on sentence in the Greek. Three through eight. It's just one big sentence. But the main verb is, back in verse three, we give thanks. That's primarily what this is about. Paul is expressing his thanksgiving to God for these Christians. He's giving thanks for their faith. Their faith shows itself in their love. Both their faith and love have sprung up from their hope. And their hope in turn is what they heard about in the gospel. So it can be a little confusing, but as you follow closely through a series of these daisy-chained statements, Paul is ultimately giving thanks to God for his work in them through the gospel. Now at the very heart of this passage, verse 5, is the gospel. And that's fitting because the gospel is the power of God for salvation The gospel is the means by which God will use to grow his church. And the gospel is the tool God will use to mature his people. So from Paul's words here, we actually gain a a powerful perspective. We get a clear window into God's strategy to build his church, both in breadth and in depth. And the cloth and church, they're just one example of God's strategy to build and mature his church. He's been doing the same thing for 2,000 years. The strategy doesn't change. It comes from God. There's no need for change. His power to, to save people and to sanctify people, it's still found in this thing we call the gospel, this message of the gospel. And so we would do well then to further understand, study, apply the gospel to our lives, as it relates to our own salvation and our growth in maturity as well. That's what we're going to do from this passage. Let me show you from this text four products of the gospel that you too may give thanks to God. Four products of the gospel that you too may give thanks to God. The first, the gospel produces thanksgiving. Just straight off the top, the gospel produces Thanksgiving. And look back again at verse 3. He says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. That's a pretty interesting verse. Paul says he's praying always for them, for these Colossian Christians. This prayer is largely thanksgiving. He's thanking God on their account. Again, what makes it so striking is that Paul had never been there. He didn't know these people. He'd not met any of them personally. But ever since he heard that they had come to faith in Christ Jesus, he's not stopped praying for them and thanking God for this this work of faith in the gospel. It's pretty remarkable that Paul is so invested in the spread of the gospel that he rejoices when it bears fruit, even apart from his efforts. I mean, how diligently do we pray for people that we do know? let alone Christians we've not met. This should make us think of all of our new partner churches in Spain, for example, where you don't know any of them personally. I think, right? I don't think any of you know any of them personally. This is a new partnership. 
But that should not stop us from frequently remembering them and giving God thanks for for the work he's faithful to do in the gospel in every nation. And for us, that, that includes Spain. And Paul knew such thanksgiving, it's a matter of worship. This is an expression of our worship to God where we're giving him the credit and the honor for his work. He builds the church. Keep in mind, this, this thanksgiving is a product of the gospel. You have to see his thanksgiving in verse 3 is dependent on their faith in verse 4. Their faith is dependent on their hope in verse 5. And that hope itself sprang forth from the gospel, which they heard and believed. And so Paul is thanking God for just the work of the gospel and all it resulted in in their lives. God had planted a field in Colossae that Paul didn't even know about. He didn't plant it. But when he, ha- when he hears about it, he gives thanks. And we likewise should give thanks when we see a harvest of the gospel that, that we didn't do anything to create. You know, a couple of years ago, I was clearing out our garden beds out back. We had grown you know, lettuce and many other things. It was getting to be winter. So all the lettuce had bolted which means that it springs up flower, goes to seed, and it's not really that good anymore. So I was clearing out the beds, taking all that lettuce, take it out front, toss it in the green bin. End of story. Winter passes. Spring comes. I hadn't paid any attention to it. And then one day in spring, I, I, I noticed just randomly behind the green trash bin, this perfect little head of green butter leaf lettuce had grown just all by itself. The only explanation is that a seed must have fallen off when I was throwing out last year's lettuce. And just one seed must have fallen within range of like my drip irrigation out front. And it it sprouted all by itself. It grew all by itself. I didn't do a single thing. I was very excited to see it though. There's nothing better than a harvest you did nothing to produce. You just get all the benefits. And likewise, Paul... He did nothing here. He did not plant the Colossian church. He didn't even scatter that seed. That was Epaphras. But he just sees the gospel message multiplied. It's like seed. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get there. Some seed reached Colossae, and this church was born. And he rejoices in that. We should as well. It can't be stopped. It can't be helped. Once the seed gets out, some are going to take root. And today, for example, a few countries have tried as hard as China to prevent the spread of the gospel, as you probably know. But the gospel got in there anyway. Someone crossed the border and just kind of dumped a pack of seeds and it just, it got in and it spread like wildfire, even despite, or despite their efforts to stop it. And so some have estimated now there are around 30 million Christians in China. It's still a vast majority or minority rather, but it's still a lot at the same time. We should marvel at that and thank God for his work through the gospel. This act of thanksgiving is an important expression of worship. Thanksgiving always has an object, right? And Paul, he's, he's not thanking the Colossians. You see that? He's not praising them for their faith, for choosing God. He's thanking God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Because he recognizes ultimately their salvation, their faith come from God. And so he praises him, every good thing given. And every perfect gift comes down from above. And so as an expression of worship, 
Paul thanks God for that. Furthermore, though, did you know that this act of thanksgiving is also a means that God uses to mature us in the faith? Did you know that? When you give thanks to God, what are you doing? You're recognizing his work, his power, his grace. And God uses that very act of recognition to do what? To keep us humble, to keep us dependent on him, to keep us from exalting ourselves. The thankful Christian recognizes that there's no room for boasting about anything. What do you have that you did not receive in this life? You owe God your very breath. And so give him the thanks, the recognition, the glory. When you fail to do that, though, you, when you boast and exalt self, you are robbing God of that glory. You're taking for yourself that which does not belong to you. It's important you recognize this act of thanksgiving that Paul emulates is no mere trivial pleasantry. It's a vital means of spiritual growth. It expresses our worship, but keeps us in a place of humble dependence on God for all of our blessings, which we count on and we can be assured of in the gospel. In such meaningful thanksgiving, it's actually a little theme in Colossians. Just real quick, by way of preview, can I show you how in Colossians, just just by itself, Paul shows us how thanksgiving is supposed to be a part of our Christian maturity. Just look at Colossians 2. 6 and 7. This is a major verse we'll get to. Colossians 2, 6. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Part of walking in Christ and being built up in him is to be overflowing with gratitude. And that thanksgiving keeps us rooted in Christ. It shows up in chapter 3. Look at 3.15. He says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. It's really all over. And here we see how thanksgiving is also meant to be the means of our peace and harmony with fellow believers. Do you find yourself often complaining about others? Do you find yourself even being, you know, bitter or angry or frustrated with a fellow believer? How about try finding ways to give thanks to God for what he has done in, your, in their life, and you'll find that change. And then finally, one more in chapter 4. Every chapter, there's thanksgiving here in Colossians. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, with an attitude of thanksgiving. This thanksgiving needs to be an active part of your prayer lives as well. You're not an apostle, so you may not feel compelled to pray for all the churches. But how about you just commit to praying for, you know, your local church and the people in it? 
giving thanks to God for the work he's already done in your local body. Develop a habit of thanksgiving, thanking God for the work he's already done in your lives, in the lives of those around you. And this is the first product of the gospel here. It's a rich life of thanksgiving. Secondly, second product of the gospel. The gospel produces faith, hope, and love. Secondly, the gospel produces faith, hope, and love. Go back to chapter 1, look at verse 3 again. He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope you have laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Faith, hope, and love. They often appear as a triad of Christian virtues in scripture. They show up here as well. Paul begins with their faith. He's been thanking God for them ever since he heard about their faith. Now, faith, of course, is the defining mark of the Christian. And Christianity alone teaches salvation by faith alone. Not faith plus works, but faith alone. Like Galatians 2.16, that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible teaches the only way to be made right with God is by faith. And faith, when you think about it, is really the anti-work. Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And faith is a a recognition and a trust, actually, that you you can't do anything yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't earn your way to God. You can't make up for your sins. There's nothing you can do. You have fallen short, and you can't do anything. Your only hope is to cry out just for mercy. And the good news is, thankfully, that Christ has come to give us that mercy, dying on the cross in our place. And that explains why saving faith must always have an object. Faith in Christ Jesus. There's only one object that saves. There's only one faith that saves. That's faith in Christ Jesus. You've got to completely trust, not your works and effort, but his works and effort, his person, his work on the cross to save you. So here, Paul is most excited to learn that these Colossians have done that. They've come to to know and believe and trust, not in themselves, but in Christ to save them. And that, that again, moves him to thanksgiving. Now, oftentimes, we see in other people only the things we don't like, right? Even for someone who's a fellow believer, in our mind, They're defined by the things we don't like or the ways they fall short. So you might think, oh, that that person is such an anger problem. I don't even want to talk to them. Or even something like minor doctrine, like, man, I can't believe that person has such a wacky view of the end times. Like, I don't want to mess with them. These trivial things. But instead, we should see fellow Christians through the lens of the gospel. Does this person have faith in Christ Jesus? That's what matters most. They may not have it all together in doctrine or in practice. Neither do you. 
But do they have true faith in the gospel of Christ Jesus? And if, if that's a yes, they're a brother. They're a sister. They're a fellow heir of the grace of life. And so, at the very least, just you know, try giving God thanks for that work which he has already done in their lives. They got room to grow. Newsflash. So do you. So do I. But thank God for what he has done. You're going to find that act of thanksgiving is like a, a magnet that, that pulls opposites together. Sin is like a magnet that repulses, divides. But thanksgiving leads to true love for one another. Speaking of, Paul recognizes how true faith, if genuine, leads necessarily to love. So he mentions next their love. Love is the first and foremost fruit of the new life. He says, since we've heard of the love which you have for all the saints. Paul is delighted to hear not just of the presence of their faith, but the practice of their faith. And that practice shows up, it should show up, first and foremost, in our our love for one another. This is the real sign that new life had emerged in Colossae. It's one thing to, to grow a tomato plant. It's another for it to actually start producing tomatoes and see the, the presence of a strong love for the saints. That was the fruit in the Colossian church that was displaying. These guys are the real deal. Like that they're really alive. They're new. Something has, has transformed them because this is a supernatural love. And like Jesus said, such a, a self-giving sacrificial love for the brethren it is the chief means by which a true disciple of Jesus Christ is identified. In Matthew 13, 34, and 35, where Christ said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. This love is not always easy though. You may, you may find it hard to love others, even others in the church. Some are unlovely, some are abrasive, some are just different from you. But I'll tell you, whatever differences you might have, it, it doesn't even compare to the animosity between Jews and Gentiles in the early church. I trust you know some about that. But if, if they could overcome and love one another, so can you. But again, this is not natural though, because sin naturally divides us. But this love is supernatural. It's a product of the gospel. Only those who have received the love of God in Christ are going to be able to love like this. Because what does the gospel tell us? We were God's enemies. We did not deserve any love. But he still sent Christ to die for us and to redeem us forever. That's a, a supreme sacrificial love. And if you've received that love, how can you not now love your brother or sister for whom Christ died? This is a supernatural love and and let it be a product of the gospel. And then thirdly here, Paul thanks God for their hope. He's thankful hearing about their faith and their love and now their hope. Look again at verse five. He mentions that this hope or, or their faith and love He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. 
faith, hope, and love, which is the greatest? Paul says elsewhere that love is the greatest. But that being said, here, hope stands out. You notice verse 5 begins with the word because. You see, Paul is connecting their faith and love to their hope. Or in other words, it's the hope that they have laid up in heaven that gives rise to their faith and love. What this means is Paul is not talking about the subjective feeling of hope. Like, you know, I hope I'll get to heaven. I I hope this surgery will go well, or I hope the future will be better. No, he's talking about the objective reality of hope, where the thing hoped for is, is the hope. This is the objective hope of heaven. I'll explain that a little bit more. He says they heard about this hope in the word of truth. The gospel. And you know, the gospel message, it starts off with bad news, right? Like you're a sinner. You've fallen short of God's perfect standard. You've transgressed his law and his ways. And so now a judgment is coming. His righteous wrath will be poured out. And there's nothing you can do about that because you're not good and you can't be good enough. That's some bad news, but thankfully there's good news as well. That because of God's love, he did for you that which you could not do for yourself. And he sent Christ, the Son of God, to die on the cross. And he bore the wrath of God in your place. He's dying in your place as a a substitute sacrifice that, that you would be forgiven. He rose to new life. And now Christ offers you that new life, that resurrection life. It's a life where you're not going to be forever separated from the love of God and judgment, but reconciled to God and his son forever. And so this gospel message presents people with a hope, right? A hope for forgiveness, a hope for new and eternal life. Now, again, what is faith? Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And the conviction of things not seen. So that gospel message offers you some things to hope for. Like forgiveness. Like eternal life. But those hopes do not belong to you until you believe. Until you have faith. And when God works in your heart though, you hear the gospel message. First, you're convicted of the bad news. You believe it. You realize, you know, this person's right. I I am a sinner. I have fallen short of God. I I deserve judgment. And I believe it's coming. But then you're also convicted of the good news. That I also believe this hope here. That Christ is Lord. He really did die on the cross. He really did rise again. And that I can trust in him alone. And I'll get that hope. I have assurance. I, I have a conviction now. That's actually true. And you believe it. That is faith. But you can see how it's the hope that gives rise to faith. And that's what Paul is saying here. That hope is like the fertile seedbed from which faith arises. So I'll ask if you have that hope. Have you heard it? Have you believed it? Leading to your own faith? Do you have the assurance of things hoped for? It's not the hope of things hoped for. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Like, I really believe it. 
like I believe in gravity. It's, just, it's true. It's going to happen. And I pray your hope leads to true faith. Most confuse hope with wishful thinking. Like, you know, I hope the Dodgers will win this year or whatever. But that's, that hope can never go beyond wishful thinking because the object is man. But the, the promises of the gospel are, are founded on God himself. You can give it your full confidence and faith. And such hope, after all, is a product of God's grace in the gospel. This hope we have because of the gospel is an anchor of the soul, as Hebrews puts it. You know, even in stormy seas that the waves are rough, there's trials and tribulation in your life. If your anchor is, is in the firm seabed of Christ, you're not going anywhere. Maybe a bumpy ride, but you're, you're safe, you're secure, you, you have a hope. And it's so important as a Christian, you don't, you don't pull anchor. You don't move away from the hope of Christ. In fact, we'll see later down in Colossians 1, 23, how important it is that we're not moved away from the hope of the gospel. All too many Christians, they come to faith, they hear about Jesus, they hear this gospel message. Okay, great, I believe. And then they're just on with their life. They never give the gospel a second thought. And they've pulled anchor. And then they wonder, why is my life kind of falling apart here? Why are things out of control? You've pulled anchor. And we'll see more about that later. But for now, we need to, to realize how the gospel produces faith, hope, and love, and, and thank God for that. Well, we need to keep going. Number three, the gospel produces fruit. The gospel produces fruit. Verse five, Paul shows how the gospel really is the source of their faith, hope, and love. And he's going to take that thought and run with it. Speaking of the gospel, he's focusing on, on the gospel itself now. And he says, verse six, he said, talking about the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. As Paul continues his introduction, he recalls how this gospel came to them, but not them only. It's already gone out through all the world, and it didn't take long for the seed to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the remotest parts of the earth. You can trace that spread in the book of Acts. And the seed of the gospel, as if carried by the wind, just couldn't be contained. You know, by the way, that's what makes the flu and the cold virus so troublesome, is that they're airborne, right? If, if you're in a room with someone who's infected with the cold or flu, and they cough or sneeze, you are now at risk of getting infected yourself. It just takes a little bit for it to travel to you that they're airborne, and therefore it's very hard to contain. And again, in a way, that the gospel is kind of like that. It's like an airborne virus. It spreads from one host to another. It infects them. It turns them into a carrier. The only difference, though, is that this virus does not kill you, but makes you alive. It brings you to life. It gives you new hope, and so makes you a willing host, where it becomes your delight to just, you want to share this good news with others. You want to infect other people that, that, because they need this hope. You want, you love them, you want them to have this hope. And so wherever you go, you speak the truth, you're, you're coughing the gospel, and it just spreads 
That's God's design. This happens through the world. The result, like he says in verse 6, is that it's constantly bearing fruit and increasing. These are agricultural terms for reproduction and, and maturation of crops. You know, like plants, the gospel has the ability to mature and, and reproduce itself over and over again. And it's just a matter of time before it spreads. And as it does, and it crosses cultural and geographical borders, the gospel shows itself as true. The universality of the gospel is a major testimony to its truthfulness. You probably know the vast majority of Hindus live in India. The vast majority of Buddhists live in Southeast Asia. The vast majority of Muslims live in the Middle East. But Christianity has completely spread from the Middle East to Europe, North America, South America, Africa, Asia, Australia. It's crossed every border and it's broken down every social barrier. Rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile. All are one in Christ. Sin is a universal problem. And only Christ is the savior of the world. You should marvel at God's global plan for the gospel and give thanks. But as I said before, this plan does not just concern breadth, but also depth. And that the gospel is meant to have deep roots wherever it lands. And as Paul reminds them, this same gospel has been continually bearing fruit and increasing in them since the day they heard of it. It continues to increase in their midst. And accordingly, Paul will use these same two terms down in verse 10 to describe their sanctification, their growth in Christ. It's important that you understand that this gospel message, that the word of truth found in the word, it's not just meant for our salvation. And like I said before, some Christians, they hear the gospel, they believe in Jesus, and then, okay, that's nice. It's kind of on with the rest of their life. That's wrong. The same gospel truths that saved us, they're meant to continually and daily feed us and to fuel our spiritual growth in Christ. And in this case, the gospel is unlike seed. Because a seed has enough energy to power the growth of a plant for just a short while. Very soon, that plant needs to start deriving energy from the sun and the soil or it won't last long. But in a sense, the gospel seed, out of which springs a Christian, it has all the spiritual power you need to grow for the rest of your life. The grace of God and truth has been made known to you has all the spiritual energy you need to grow. You just need to be constantly and increasingly connected to the truth found in the word of God. And this is God's design. And so again, how, how tragic it is for Christians who they've moved away from the hope of the gospel. And then they wonder, why am I not growing? Notice Paul did not say they simply heard of the grace of God and truth. They understood it. You see that? They heard and understood the grace of God and truth. Hearing is not enough. You must understand God's word and will in Christ Jesus. And as your understanding grows, you're going to grow. 
It is not enough to merely have an emotional response to the gospel. If all your faith is based on is an emotional response to the gospel, it's not going to last long. The second the sun comes out, it'll be scorched. It just won't last. You need it. What you need is what Paul prays for them next, in verse 9, for next week, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We need to be continually filled with this knowledge and understanding. That leads us to right living. And then down in verse 10, bearing fruit and increasing. Have you lost confidence in the gospel? Or maybe you've just been ignorant of how it it must be your confidence. But I believe Paul says this to remind them, don't move away from the hope of Christ found in the gospel and all that goes with it. It's not just for your salvation. It's for your daily Christian life as well. You need to make this your confidence. You need to feed off of it. And then you will see how the gospel produces fruit. That's number three. The gospel produces fruit. We need to finish number four. Lastly, the gospel produces servants. The fourth product of the gospel, the gospel produces servants. And Paul brings to an end this little opening part of his introduction by recalling how they heard of the gospel. Verse 7, he says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ in our behalf, And he also informed us of your love in the spirit. We learned all about Epaphras last week. He was a resident of Colossae. Most likely he was converted by Paul when he was in Ephesus. That Epaphras though, he came alive by the gospel. And then he grew up fast. Some plants grow faster than others. Some plants bear fruit faster than others. And that was Epaphras. He just caught fire by the gospel. He grew Real fast. So he quickly becomes Paul's beloved bondservant and a a servant of Christ. In the Greek, Paul uses both the term for slave and servant here to talk about Epaphras. Meaning he just totally chained his life to Christ and the spread of his gospel. And he did so faithfully. Seems likely that Paul commissioned Epaphras to, to take the gospel back to the cities of the Lycus Valley, like Colossae. And Epaphras, he was the one who scattered the seed over there. And he was the one who planted those churches. He's also the one who cares about them enough that when trouble is brewing on the horizon, he's the one that goes to Rome to visit Paul in prison to get some help. That's Epaphras. And thankfully, we know that the Colossian church was mostly good, faithful, loving church as Epaphras informed Paul, but all the more, he wanted to protect them from blight before it comes. But we really, we can see in Epaphras how the gospel produces servants. It's kind of like an oil candle. As soon as the wick catches flame, so long as it's steeped in the oil, it'll just burn forever. And the more, more oil it draws, the brighter it will burn, and the more likely it is to catch something else on fire. And Epaphras, he was just lit on fire by the hope of the gospel. And he was being fueled deeply 
by the hope of the gospel. And he was just spreading around, lighting other people on fire. And that's a good thing. This should challenge us and encourage us as well. How strong is your hope in the gospel? How assured are you of things unseen? Do you really believe in Christ crucified and risen? Is that truth? You notice in verse 5, Paul links the gospel with, he says, the word of truth. And the word truth there is in apposition to the gospel. Or vice versa, the, the word gospel is in apposition to the truth. That just means he's basically saying the truth, which is the gospel. You know, the Colossians were going to face some people who were going to tell them that gospel is not the truth. Or it's not, it's not all the truth. It's not enough. You need something more. But no, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That Jesus really is the way and the truth and the life. You've heard that, but have you understood the grace of God in truth? And if so, you can't keep that to yourself. Right? This truth demands to be shared. Like Jesus said, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but on a lampstand, that it may give light to all who are in the house. If you've truly believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and caught fire, it is God's design now that, that you, you share that truth with others. It's time for you now to be the farmer who scatters the seed. God will bring others to life. That, that's his job. You, you leave that to him. But he's designed to use people like you to now scatter the seed of the gospel. And so will you be faithful? Will, will, will the gospel produce in you a faithful servant? Are you going to work with or against God's strategy to build his church in this age? Not too long ago, I was talking to some other pastors. And they were expressing their frustration with reaching the community and getting people to attend their churches. And their old strategies weren't working anymore. One guy related how their Easter egg hunt was not drawing as many people. And of all the people that came, not a single person attended their church from the Easter egg hunt. And so they're trying to find a new strategy. But let me tell you, God's original strategy is not broken. It never needed replacing. It does no good to import a bunch of tares into the field of wheat. Now, that's not building the church. God's strategy has always been the same from the beginning. You just preach the gospel. That's all you do. Preach the gospel. You scatter the seed of the gospel with your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbor. Anywhere you see a, an open field, throw some seed. It is just like Jesus said in one of my favorite parables. I'll read it. Mark four twenty six. The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night, gets up by day. And the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. That's God's strategy to build the church. And our part is simply scatter the seed of the gospel all around us and then go to sleep. That's all we can do. 
That's all we need to do. Once unleashed, the seed has enough power in itself to do the rest, to transform lives. It'll sprout, it'll grow. How? Just by itself. Just by itself. I pray this encourages you and yet also challenges you this morning. When it comes to the gospel, place your confidence in the gospel. Don't lose sight of it. Don't forget its power to transform your life and the lives of those around you as it's already done. And therefore, don't keep it to yourself. It's our only hope, but it's our sure and steadfast hope. We need to share this hope and we need to be thanking God for the hope that he's given to us each and every day as it bears fruit in our lives and the lives around us. No matter what, let us give thanks for the gospel. Pray with me. Our great God in heaven, we do just that. We thank you for the gospel. It's just a message, but in this message comes words of life, words that have power to bring dead people to life. That is just your power, and that's why you get all the glory, Lord, but you've chosen to use just the foolishness of this message preached, Christ crucified, that by your Holy Spirit, as that seed falls on fertile soil, it will come to new life, and a person will gain a new hope and eternal life. We marvel at your plan and your strategy. We need no other. Help us to forsake man's ways and simply be content with your ways. We trust you for the fruit. We don't have to worry about how many crops come and go. Let us just be a faithful people to represent and share your gospel with the world around us. We trust you to do the rest, and we know you are good. Your will be done. In our own lives, Lord, help us also not to to move away from the anchor of the gospel. You've designed this seed not just to start our lives, but to sustain our lives. We need this hope every day to correct us, to guide us, to give us perspective, to fuel our life, which can still be hard, but our hope overcomes. So let the, the hope of Christ be clear in our eyes this morning, that we would not be moved away from it, but stay close and give thanks for it every day. We thank you for Christ, our Savior, To him be the glory. In his name we pray. Amen.